Hello, and welcome to Follow the Woo podcast, where each week I, Fenelong Kush, will guide you on a journey into the land of the woo. We're going to investigate witchcraft, meditations, the paranormal and supernatural, alien and fey encounters, gurus, shamanism, and, and, and all the woo. So hold on to your butt. This just might be the weirdest part of your day. Hello, humans and all other entities. I talk a lot about how when you purposefully follow the woo, like when you poke at the universe or the phenomena, you investigate it or you dare to ask questions about deep esoterica, the woo will play back. It's always game. It'll play with you in a way that feels like it's just been waiting for you, which is kind of bonkers. You probably won't get the answers you want. In fact, you may not get any answers at all. But weird, head-scratching shit is bound to happen. And even weirder synchronicities. This podcast is proof of that. But sometimes you come across a person who didn't have to purposefully or actively engage the woo. It engaged them from the beginning. For these people, the woo started the conversation and followed them until they had no choice but to pay attention. My guest, Stephanie Bingham, is one of those people where the woo made the first move, like right out of the gate. She was a year and a half old when she was visited by her first ghost family member. And he didn't just stop by once or twice. They still have a relationship to this day. Now, this isn't unheard of in paranormal or spiritual communities. I mean, Even on other episodes of Follow the Woo, I interviewed people who've also had very early spooky experiences. But there's something a little different about the breadth and depth of Stephanie's relationship with the Woo. And maybe part of that is due to her academic background. She has degrees in history and anthropology and specifically studied turn-of-the-century New Orleans voodoo She continues to research paranormal phenomena while also lecturing on various topics like historic voodoo, inhuman spirits, psychic kids, how to ghost hunt, and famous hauntings like the Lizzie Borden murders. In this zigzaggy conversation, I ask her about like a gazillion topics. She weaves together seemingly disparate subjects with ease. And because she couldn't tell the difference between ghosts and humans for the first few years of her life, She's not afraid of them in the same ways most people are. Stephanie responded to the call of the woo over and over and over again. Her career reflects that. She's a historian, a paranormal investigator, and a psychic. She also has been on various paranormal shows, including Mysteries Decoded, Paranormal Lockdown, and School Spirits. She's gone farther down some of the rabbit holes than many of us are willing to go. And that's precisely why she's so damn interesting. We talk about her relationships with ghosts, inhuman entities, possession, curses, the difference between the fae and aliens, vampires, psychics, voodoo, you name it. And I still have so many more questions for her. Okay, we're going to jump right into talking about meeting her first ghost. You know what to do. Hold on to your butt cheeks. We're doing it.
I always like to know the background of all of my guests' lives. Uh, pretty much every human, actually, if you give me the chance. But especially people who have a connection with the paranormal like you do. What was your childhood like? Did you have a really early onset paranormal experience? And here's the second part of that question, too, to make it more complicated. Like, were your parents involved in it in any way? <laughs> Do I have a story for you? Yes. Let's just dive right in. <laughs> let's do it. Let's do it. It'll be fun. So the first ghost that I know I saw, I was about a year and a half old when it happened. So I assume that I've seen them my entire life, but the very first time that I know for certain it happened, a relative had died. This was a relative that I'd never met. He was an older man and we were staying at my grandparents' house after the funeral and I was sleeping in a playpen in one of the bedrooms. A man came in through the window, picked me up out of the playpen and talked to me. She lives to tell the tale. <laughs> I do. I live to tell the tale after this, but that is sort of how it went down. And I told my mom, you know, this man came through the window and he talked to me, you know, I told her what happened and uh, she was like, okay, sure. Cool. Sort of patted me on my head and sent me on my way. And it kept happening over and over and over again. And it's the same pattern. I'll come through the window. He'd sit and he'd talk to me, sometimes play with me and then just sort of go. I was never afraid of him, never any sort of negative vibes associated with him. But I kept telling my mother about this man that would come in through the window and talk to me at night. So eventually she sort of got suspicious and she found a big group family photo with a bunch of people I didn't know in it. And she was like, is anybody in this picture the person that you're seeing coming through the window? And I pointed at the gentleman who had just recently died. And at that point, she made a very interesting choice. She basically said, okay, just tell me what he says when he shows up, basically, and sent me on my way. She did not tell me he was a ghost. I did not realize I was seeing ghosts until very late elementary school. Ah. So I had to figure it out for myself, which makes this weird sort of transitionary period when I was very young where I know I was seeing ghosts. Because when I go back and ask my friends from that time period, you know, do you remember this person and this and this? They don't remember them, but I do. And I can go back to some of those places and I can still find those spirits in the form that I remember them being in as a child. So I just simply had no idea that he was dead. So yeah, I started early. That's very early. So you're, you're one and a half. How long did that specific spirit that came like knocking, you know, at such an early age, how long were you hanging out with him? He still shows up occasionally. He generally now shows up like if I'm in a emotional turmoil, if I'm really upset about something, he'll pop in and he does the same thing. He'll come in through or near a window, sit on the edge of my bed at night and he'll talk to me. Oh my gosh. The questions <laughs> are just like, it's like acid reflux. I have so many questions. I can't even, I need a Tums. Where do I start? So he's got some intelligence. Absolutely. Yeah. You talked about little kid things when you were teeny yes. tiny and now you have adult conversations. Very much so. So when I was little, it was very much, you know, look at this toy. Oh, aren't you cute? It was little kid things. And it was always about something that was happening then or something that had recently happened. And it was always very timely. As I got older and started realizing that they were ghosts, he started talking about them as ghosts and giving me sort of his take on them and sort of why I saw so many of them and just things like that back and forth. So it very much evolved over time, but he's very much a sentient entity. You said this is a relative. What's the connection? Great, great uncle, I believe. He was on my mother's side of the family. I'm not 100% sure of the exact relational line there, but my grandfather also saw him around the same time that I started seeing him. Is he able to come to different locations or is he only in that one spot? 
Absolutely. So he follows me a lot of the time and it's wherever I'm at at that time. So I've seen him when I was away at college, I've seen him in some of my apartments and my grandparents' house and my parents' house, just wherever I am is where he oftentimes shows up. Is he always comforting? Always comforting. Always. Always. So did your mom tell you, you said it's on your mom's side, right? Mm -hmm. Did she tell you that this dude was like a kick-ass guy in real life? I mean, did she know him well? Did anybody that she knew know him and say, yeah, he was a good guy? My grandparents knew him. My grandparents knew him very well. My mother didn't really talk about him a lot, but they've shown me home videos of him playing with like kittens and stuff. So I mean, like he was a well-known, well-appreciated member of the family. He just wasn't especially close to my parents. But we have all kinds of videos of this man just, you know, doing normal things. So Mm -hmm. I never got a lot of information about how he was as a person, but I know how he was after he died. Yeah. And they say that that can be, well, it depends on the situation, but it can be very similar. Mm -hmm. But do you think of him as a guardian or just a buddy or what do you think of him now? I've had a lot of people sort of classify him for me as a guardian spirit or as a spirit guide. That is not what I would classify him as. He's very familial to me. So I classify his family. That's that's just what he is. But I think in more in terms of sort of found family, the ones that are mine that I've collected, they are my, they're my group. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't necessarily try and point me in direction so much as try and help me deal with whatever I'm facing at that point, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Can you feel him? Can you see him? Can you touch him? So when I was very young, I could not tell the difference between a ghost and a living person. They were solid to me. And unless I am working very hard, they still look solid to me now. If someone talks to me in a crowd, I won't acknowledge them if I don't know them until I see someone else acknowledge them because you don't want to be the crazy person in the crowd talking to the air. I've done it enough. It's not fun, but it's just one of those things for me. I have learned over time to feel the difference, especially if it's a one-on-one interaction. Ghosts feel distinctly different to me. The way I've always sort of explained energy, how it feels to me in general, is thousands of ant legs crawling on the inside of my skin. It just feels like that crawling over me when there's energy super close to me. And he will always appear and sit on the bed. So you can always feel him specifically. But the air changes, the room changes when he enters the room. Has anybody else over the years caught a glimpse of him or heard him too? Never when he was talking to me, but my grandparents did see him. So they were able to interact with him shortly after his death. It didn't continue for them after, but they were able to see him at one point. So sort of. Why do you think he stayed around? I was his connection. He wanted to see what happened. He was very much invested for whatever reason. I was the only child in the family at the time. And I think that that had a lot to do with it. I was the first of the next generation. He wanted to be involved. He did not have any kids. So he was the end of his line. So I think that that had a lot to do with it. Wow. And have you talked to your parents about this connection that you have with him? I have brought it up a couple of times to my parents, specifically when I verbatim told them what was happening. Because they did not bring it up again to me. I brought it up to them when I was in college. And I was like, so this thing that's been happening. And they're like, yeah, uh-huh, that's there. Yeah, like, cool. Okay. Thanks so cool. much for differentiating when I was like, you know, a kid. It really didn't help in the differentiation part. But it really did help in the manner of they didn't freak out. I've seen yeah. so many parents who it's immediately it's a demon. It's a demon. It's a demon. It's a demon. 
my parents didn't do that. I wasn't afraid, so they weren't afraid. They just sort of kept an eye on it, if you will, from a distance. So it was a very double-edged sword there, but I kind of like how it ended up because I got to come to terms with the ghosts on my own terms. And I didn't get that preconceived notion of, yes, they're evil. So there was a gap in talking to them about it, but they know they've talked about it since then. And more so not about him, but about the other spirits that live in my parents' home. So that's the more common conversation there with them, not so much him, but the ones that are active and do stuff and cause things that they notice. So they are open to the paranormal world. They're used to it now. They know what kind of work you do. I'm so interested in the relationship with parents of people who are in this world, because oftentimes, like you said, it can be pretty strained and it's a demon or it's some other like mental illness. And Mm -hmm. it seems like your parents are very open-minded. My parents are very open about it. I'm not sure that they're super good with living with it. (laughs) Uh, when activity starts rolling around in the house, they always call me and it's like, so this thing is happening. Make it stop. They're not wanting to lean into that. Exactly. Not wanting to lean into it, but my mother loves going on ghost hunts with me. So anytime I can take her on a hunt, I do because she enjoys going to the places and looking around and sort of poking it from a distance Mm -hmm. with you, with you nearby with me there. With me there. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) You said that in elementary school, late elementary school is when you figured out that ghosts Uh were not just regular humans. Please tell me how you figured that out without your parents' help. (laughs) You know, embarrassing childhood stories. That's, that's how you figure it out. Can't wait. (laughs) I was going about my everyday business in elementary school, doing important things, coloring pictures, you know, whatever it is you do as an elementary schooler. And I had friends. The problem being, right, right? It's good (laughs) thing you have friends. It's good. It's good. It's better when everyone can see them. I had friends that nobody else could see. And that's, I don't know, kid logic, you know, you don't really think about it. But what really sort of explained it for me was I met somebody else who had the same quirks I did. Uh, How old? I met him in third grade. Oh my gosh. How old are we in third grade? It's like eight-ish? Yeah, somewhere around there. Yeah. Okay. Okay. He was the one who flat out told me. What did he say? Those are ghosts. Yeah. He, he was very blunt about it. Those are ghosts. Nobody else can see them. And he and I started playing a game back and forth. We were at an after school program together and he would basically be like, so there's this thing over there. I'm going to write down what I have. You write down what you have. We'll trade notes. And you start, I assume, getting the right answers to each other's questions. And are, are your minds blown? Or are you just still in like kid land? So you're like, oh yeah, it's normal. I was in kid land. Like I'm not quick on the uptake when I'm a child at all. I was supposed to be smart, but not for this sort of thing. It was just normal. Are you still friends with this guy? He left the school in sixth grade. Oh. So we lost contact at that point. Bummer. Have you ever wanted to find him and be like, oh yeah. Yeah. Can't find him though, huh? No. Interesting. Do you think he's like mm-hmm. off the grid or something? That would not surprise me one little bit. I really don't know what happened to him. The older we got, he got more and more freaked out about it because his parents started getting freaked out about it. His parents started taking him to doctors. His parents started telling him not to say these things, that he's possessed by a demon. All this other stuff started happening. That is the point where I freaked out when he started getting all this backlash, when he started freaking out. And then when he left school with no explanation, that's when I really sort of shut down for a little while. I've had that sort of stage where it's not real. I'm not going to look at it. I'm not going to look at it. I'm not going to look at it. That doesn't work for me. Because even if I'm not looking at them, they're looking at me and they're going to come back. And they did. And the problem was by that point in time, I had had my first encounter with Inhumans at that point. 
And the more you poke them, or at least in my experience, the more you poke them, sort of the more of their attention you get. And that's primarily what I deal with now, which is fine as an adult, but as a child in school, not so great. So Mm. middle school was not fun for anyone, I think, but for me, for that reason. Yeah. Well, that's added. Jesus. Sorry about that. And you could not pay me to go back. What's this guy's name? I keep calling him the dude. John. Okay. So John, he disappears and that screws you up. You're like, oh man, Mm -hmm. I I need to shut down a little bit. And we all know that if we shut down our gifts, weird shit happens. You feel horrible. It makes everything worse. Is that what instigated your encounter with an inhuman entity? So at that point in time, I'd already had encounters with inhumans from where I lived. I had had an aggressive but human spirit in the home my parents' home, but in the woods surrounding like my neighborhood. So there's probably 50 houses in this little neighborhood surrounded on three sides by woods. So all the kids, when you go out and play, you go to the woods to play. There were things in the woods. There were things in the woods that weren't normal. And that had started happening for me in elementary school. And it wasn't just me that saw them. The other kids in the neighborhood saw the figures in the woods, saw the dark figures. They didn't see them quite the same way I did or interact with them the same way I did, but they knew they were there. And everybody seemed to realize that when they showed up, you needed to avoid that part of the woods. And generally, if you'd go back later, there would be a reason for that. There were signs of someone camping back there or signs of things that should not be happening in the woods, happening in the woods back there. But it almost always seemed to correspond with where you were seeing these figures. And some of them got a little strange by the point that I... (laughs) I'm trying not to sound completely insane here. No, no, no. First of all, you never, ever will. I will make you look so good. And I want you to deep dive into the weirdest shit because there's no judgment here also. You want the really weird. I want the deep dive. Fuck yeah. So... The earliest super strange inhuman that I saw, I've written about this once. I've never talked about it publicly because it's it's really strange to think about it. Like just going back, it's still sort of, I don't know what I saw. I don't know what it was. We were riding bikes. It was me and the three little boys that lived next door. We were going up in the woods up to this little clearing and the trail split at one point. There were trees in between. I took the lower route. They took the higher route. And we were going up to this clearing and I went down the side and something grabbed me. Something bodily grabbed me. My bike went forward and fell over. And when I looked, there was a humanish figure that had a hold of me. But he had um, antlers. Interesting. Was it like centaur situation? or It was not a centaur situation. <sighs> like, I didn't look down at his legs. It would not have surprised me had they been, like, deer-like. But dark hair, dark eyes, literally holding me. That's all he was doing. I freaked out, as you do. He (laughs) dropped me. (laughs) Absolutely. You scream. You freak out. The boys are like, what happened? How are you there? Why is your bike there? And I, I bolted. I grabbed my bike and I bolted and they followed me out. And then we went back a few days later because I tried to explain to them what had happened without the antlers portion because... That's really strange. And we went back up there and there was debris in the upper area that we've been heading up to. Mm. And we were never quite sure, but nobody was supposed to be back there. It's private property, but there was a lot of just stuff back there that looking back looks a little shady. 
like a little makeshift home for some kind of entity or? No, like a person, like definitely a person, but with things back there that you probably shouldn't have. Like? There was coolers and shell casings and things like that. Mm. Perhaps just a hunter. Right. Maybe out here on private land with clearly a campfire that no one should have been back at. And you think that was why the antler dude grabbed you? I do. That's the only explanation I could find. But then when I look back later, trying to figure out what it was, what it could have been. The only things with antlers and yeah. humanoids are windigos. Like that's the thing that people always go to immediately is the windigo. It's a windigo. And I'm like, I no, no, it definitely still had lips and it was not super emaciated. So it wasn't a windigo, but what was it? Like, I, I have no idea. It wasn't a person. It didn't feel like a person. And you had this one encounter with? One encounter with that particular entity, yes. The other entities in the woods were tall, thin creatures that would sort of hop between trees and, like, thin, itty-bitty things that would walk, but they had arms. Mm. And they would move between the trees and you could see them, like, seven, eight feet tall, mm. thin creepy figures. And those are the ones the other kids in the neighborhood saw. So you don't think Antler Man was malevolent? I would not say that he was malevolent or benevolent. He wasn't a person. He didn't want me back there. He was not aggressive in any way to me, but he didn't want me there. And I knew that down to my core. Yes. It took all of about, you know, a second for me to be like, nope, and gone. But when I look back, like I've met malevolent spirits. That was not one. But if he needed to be, oh yeah. Would not want to meet him on a bad day. The other thing that people will throw at me when I sort of tell them that story one-on-one, oh, it's Pan, it's Pan, it's Pan. And I'm like, mm, doesn't quite fit either. The green man archetype, this sort of nature spirit, an actual god, a little out of place in the foothilly areas of Kentucky, not exactly what you'd expect to find there. I did have a sleep paralysis experience where I was visited by like a centaur sort of thing. And mm -hmm. he did not seem either malevolent or benevolent. I don't know if it's the same thing, but it kind of reminded me of it, that he was just kind of telling me what I was doing wrong. And he was like, here, look, it's very simple. And he was laying it all out for me. And I was watching myself from my body. And it was very crystal clear in that moment. Of course, I probably forgot everything that he said since then. But, you know, I, I feel like that feeling of knowing that it's not intrinsically malevolent, but it's also like, you don't want to piss him off. Right? Yeah. <laughs> right? I find that to be very, very common within humans in general. People are talking a lot right now about the fae, like the fae being everywhere and things like that. Whether that be actual fae from Celtic regions or sort of the North American version of fae, most of those are somewhere in between. And people don't seem to realize that they're not all Tinkerbell sorts, which mm -hmm. is terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Well, I get where you're coming from. You know, you have this OG ghost chat with your great, great uncle, it seems like at one and a half years old. Incredible. You kind of suppressed your gifts and then you went to high school. You did whatever you could to survive that disaster because it always is, right? And then what? Were you immediately pulled into the paranormal field or how did that happen? So... When I started suppressing everything, I started researching. I got my hands on every book I could on any sort of paranormal, pagan, any sort of practice that I could to try and give myself some context. So I was a very, very voracious reader and very much above my grade level at the time. So I started trying to research anything I could. 
And I started poking it a bit more. I was a theater kid and a ballet kid all through middle school and high school. So I spent all of my times at the studio or at the theater. Theater kids, ballet kids are willing to poke things they shouldn't poke. (laughs) They're more open. They're a lot more willing to go play with things. So I had a lot of conversations at that time with people talking about the ghosts of the theater, you know, the things that were there, things that were palatable to people, trying to sort of get my feet back underneath me, figuring out what was going on. And of course, high school is where you start poking into like the energy work and sort of what happens if I do this? It's where you do all these stupid things you should not do. So that was very much that time for me. But when it came time to go to college, I had every intention of becoming a professional ballerina. I was not going to college like that. That was not for me. And I essentially got injured. Couldn't do it. All of a sudden, I'm going to college. I was lucky enough to have really good test scores, really good grades. So I got a full ride and could basically pick whatever I wanted to study. And I decided that I needed more context for myself. I needed to prove for myself through firsthand documents. I needed to know, concretely know, that I was not the only weirdo that had been doing this. I didn't be able to prove it. So I basically went into my history program saying, I'm going to study the paranormal. And my professor (laughs) said, "Mm, you can't do that. I'm like, watch me. So I decided at that point to study specifically in undergrad, I was looking at voodoo turn of the century and ancient Egyptian religious philosophies. And I was looking for people who are weird like me. So that's the first place I found them. And then when I went to grad school, I continued building on the same thing. And I looked at the spiritualist movement and looking at their mediums around the same time, just giving myself that context of how sort of mediumship and talking to spirits is viewed in early America. I just think it's so interesting how the universe tosses you around. You're like, I'm going to be a ballerina. And they're like, bitch, no, <laughs> Yep, <laughs> you're going to do this. Not only are you going to study a paranormal undergrad, but you're also going to study it in grad school. Add to the fact that when I got there, the roommate that I got also happened to be psychic Oh, in one of the most haunted buildings and the oldest buildings on campus. That's when things got real wild. <laughs> so college, you're basically like, well... I'm going to go in and I'm going to find the truth about this. And you're on Mm -hmm. sort of like a mission. You get a psychic roommate. (laughs) Tell me about what it was like to be in the dorm with this psychic roommate. Is this Uh funny? I could literally write a book of just what happened in the three years that she and I were roommates in college. And she and I lived together when we went to grad school. So we lived together for quite some time and it got real weird. (laughs) Are you guys still friends? (laughs) No. (laughs) Oh, no. Okay, go back, go back. So what happened? Yeah, things happened. We lived in the oldest dorm on campus. It was a honors dorm, so split genders by floor. Kitchen, laundry room, snacks, everything's in the basement. Then she and I lived on the first floor and on the third floor, depending on the year. But she was very, 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 very Christian when I met her. Actually, the story of how I met her is kind of funny. You might like it. We were in honors rhetoric, which is a culling class. So they're basically just trying to keep as much work on you as they can to get everybody out of the program who can't cut it. You know, it's one Mm -hmm. of those. Everyday class, too early in the morning. She was in my class and she was doodling and I saw her doodling and I was like, hey, what are you, what are you drawing there? And she like clammed up immediately, said nothing and like took the paper and threw it away. I picked it up out of the trash can. And so she drew this really strange picture of a eye with this sort of horse coming out of it. And she was freaking out. I picked it up and 
basically found her later. Like on the way out of class, I sort of chased her down and I was like, hey, so this thing you had, what is it? Because I'm nosy and I wanted to know. And she basically told me at that point in time that I was possessed by the devil and I was going to hell and that she had a ghost in her room that she needed me to get rid of for her. Okay. What did you even say to that? It was like, okay, you think you have a ghost in your room? Show me. I wanted to see. So I went to her dorm room and yeah, there, there was a ghost. It was a sort of shadow person type, tall, skinny, sort of inky, just chilling. Her roommate would not stay in the room. Her roommate was sleeping in the lobby. Her roommate moved out, wouldn't live there. She eventually moved out of that room and people would move in, but nobody stayed in that room longer than about three weeks. And eventually that building was torn down. And she's like, well, why don't you get rid of it? And I'm like, well, it was here before you. And it's not actually causing any trouble. It's not malicious. It's not hurting anything. It's just standing. And I really feel like that one in particular had been brought in by opening, most likely through a Ouija board, which would have entailed going through and trying to find where that happened, where the Ouija board was and clearing an entire dorm, which was really more work than I was willing to do for someone who thought I was possessed by the devil. Why did she think you were possessed by the devil? Were you like wearing I love the devil shirts at that time in freshman year of college? I was wearing that. I'm looking at a cat necklace, I think. It's Bastet. It's an Egyptian goddess. She thought it was devilish. She was extremely, extremely Pentecostal Christian. So she was on medication to try and deal with the things she was experiencing because in her church and how she was raised, everything is of the devil. Although they do the laying on of hands, which was not of the devil. And that was okay to be doing, which in my mind is just straight up energy work. But she was convinced that I was of the devil because I knew that she was drawing. And when she showed me that, I brought up to a goetic demon that it sort of mimicked that I had had an interaction with before this. And I gave her resources like books and people to listen to and podcasts, very early podcasts, because this was too long ago at this point. And she started going into these things and sort of digging around and finding that, yeah, this is what's going on. And I eventually started playing the same game with her that I played with John. I know where the haunted places on campus are. I'm going to take you there. I've already written down what I see. You write down what you see. We're going to trade notes. And that is what she and I did to sort of figure out what was going on. And she found better or different people who sort of helped her regulate that medication to allow her to feel what she was feeling, see what she was seeing. Then you move in together and things start getting witchier and wooier. All hell breaks loose. Yes, witchy is is the exact right word. It got real witchy in there. (laughs) Was she letting go of her Pentecostal roots at this moment? Was it kind of like her awakening? Yes, absolutely. There was no Pentecostalism. There was no Christianity really happening then. It was full on... We're both just diving into the deep end of the pool with the weirdest esoteric energy work and sort of psychic anything we could get our hands on, which at that point in time was sort of limited. Weird sort of kismet things where you end up meeting people and talking to people and getting the attention of people that have no business finding two random college girls in Kentucky. Mm. Things like that that shouldn't have happened. But she was trying to learn how to do energy work at that point, how to do sort of basic magics and things like that. Chaos magic, that sort of thing is the easy way to sort of explain what she was trying to learn how to do and I was trying to help her. How would you explain (laughs) briefly chaos magic to the listeners just for people who don't know? So chaos magic is basically if you took formal magic, if you took ceremonial magic, which has all of the rites and all the spells and all of the gadgets and the gizmos and all the ephemera that you need to do it, all the ceremony, and you stripped it down to its barest form, the energy, the will behind it, not needing all of the extra fluff in my mind. 
It is just that. And it can be formed to basically do whatever you want it to do. It can be magic for a specific purpose. It can be for a holiday, a ritual, whatever you're trying to accomplish. But it's very versatile and it's very amorphous. It can be whatever you want it to be. Would the uh, possible consequence of using that kind of magic be that there's just not the structure and grounding needed for those that kind of power that could come through? Am I getting that right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. But that was sort of our intent. She and I both were very inclined to energy work and very easily could access and manipulate it. We were both sort of just weird that way already. Mm-hmm. So the idea of having something that was going to ground it and going to suppress it almost, that was going to keep it contained. At that point, we were exploring. We wanted to see what could we do. We were experimenting, basically, just trying to see exactly what happens if. What was the craziest what happens if? So she was trying to do a ritual and she decided not to involve me one night. And I was doing homework. I was writing a paper and she was doing a ritual sitting on the floor right next to me in my computer. Not a good format here. Eventually, she basically pulls me away from my paper and she's like, no, 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 you've got to come join me. So I do. And then she's like, so we're going to let it down. And she basically counted down to sort of letting it down and letting the energy release. Ritual was over. It was going to just sort of be gone. One, two, three, release. And the power went out. (laughs) There was a transformer that blew on the campus. So like the entire campus ended up without power. I really don't think it was connected. I hope it wasn't connected, but the timing of it was such that it felt (laughs) that way. It's one of those things that you're like, yeah, that totally did not just happen, but we're sitting here in a blackout for the next like 14 hours because we have no power. And I found that to be very sort of normal for me when things get really, really crazy, when things big like that start happening. Okay. I I still need to get my paper done. I still have to go to school in the morning. Yeah, there's big magic going on. There's big weirdness happening. I can't explain that, but that doesn't stop the fact that I need to finish my paper. Magic always happens at the least convenient times. The crazy stuff, the flaps, everything, when everything gets weird, it's the least convenient time possible. (laughs) You have one really good story from college. So my roommate, this was our junior year at college. So we were living on the first floor of the dorm and her mother, still very religious, had gone on a mission trip, had ministered to a group, did not want to be ministered to, and accepted a gift from them. She brought the gift back to their house. I have a feeling. (laughs) Your feeling is correct. I can guarantee it. So she brought back this gift. It was a string of wooden beads on a cloth cord. She brings it back. Suddenly things start getting weirder in her house. Little footsteps on the stairs, little sounds of running feet, giggling, like children's giggling, no kids in the house, super creepy. So my roommate, being the good daughter that she was, went, got the item, because she's like, that's probably a ghost, and brought it back to our dorm room. Totally fine. Where it got a little weird for me was that she didn't tell me she was doing this, and she actually placed the beads in a paper bag under my bed. Okay. Uh-huh. So I just yeah. have to pause you real quick. Is this person that, that is going a name? Can we give her a name? Tiffany? Can we just Tiffany? Tiffany. Sure. Tiffany, yeah. Tiffany. Is Tiffany like a good, solid, not toxic friend? Yes or no? You know the answer to that question. I know this archetype of a friendship. It's like very powerful. There's a lot of work to do there, but like that person maybe doesn't have your back. And will stab you in the back any chance she gets. Absolutely. Like by putting this under your bed. And not her Mm -hmm. bed? Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. I didn't know it was there. And over these first couple of days that I, looking back, knew it was there, I started having friends come to me. Ended up being three different girls that I knew 
different dorms, different religious backgrounds, different classes. They did not know each other. And they each came to me to tell me about this weird dream that they had. First time I heard it, I was like, eh. Second time I was like, that's something. Third time I was getting a little freaked out myself. But the dream went the same way for everybody. It basically started out with them lying either in a bed or in a bathtub. And at the foot of the bed or the bathtub, there was a little kid, this adorable little girl, and she was smiling at them. That was the entirety of the dream. And they were terrified. And I would ask them, so why were you freaked out? And they couldn't explain to me why they were scared. But it was this little girl standing at the foot of the bed of the bathtub smiling at them. And they were freaked out. Weird. Dreams aren't one of the areas that I focus on. So I didn't really have sort of a dream imagery kind of association for them. So I decided I would probably do a little bit of research and just try and dig around and see what I could find. It was a weekend. I was a very well-adjusted college student. So I was doing laundry and I was walking down into the basement to do laundry. Now in this basement, I had other paranormal experiences. There were three staircases to get down there. And two of them were at the sides of the main building. And one of them was in the back annex where I was. And it was about a flight and a half long of stairs. And this is in the middle of the afternoon. This is like lunchtime. And you have to go through a little door and the staircase is entirely enclosed. And I had my laundry basket to get in there. And as soon as I closed the door behind me, you could feel the energy change. Like you knew it felt electric. Something was there. I was not alone. I was expecting it to be what had been there before. But the next thing that I knew, there were little hands on the back of my legs and they pushed. I was standing at the top of the stairs. She pushed me and I ended up she rolling. She pushed you down the stairs? Mm-hmm. Didn't want to die. So I grabbed a banister, ended up going about a third of the way down the stairs. And for height reference, I'm about five feet tall. So okay. when I stood up, my head was just below the level of the landing that I'd fallen from. So I didn't fall super far, but still, I sort of took a minute to sort of collect myself and what just happened? What's going on? And I looked back up to the top of the stairs and there she was. This little thing, cutest kid I've ever seen, dark hair, dark eyes, little rose-colored nightgown, no shoes on, smiling at me. And it was at that point that I realized why my friends were afraid in the dream. Her teeth weren't human. Each and every one of them was pointed like a shark's. Oh, how nice. Right? Right. Super good. This is also when I discovered that my fight or flight reflex was broken because in that moment, I made the decision that I was going to go up the stairs. I was going to catch her. I had no idea what I was going to do, but I bolted up the stairs with every intention of grabbing that little thing. Luckily for me, by the time I got there, she was gone. And that was the point where my brain caught up with me and you sort of, you know, realize what just happened and what you were trying to do. And I ran back to my dorm room and I told my roommate, this is what just happened. And she's like, oh, guess what? These beads under your bed. And I was like, great, great. This is totally great. We needed to get them off campus. She seemed to follow the beads. Everywhere the beads went, she followed. Couldn't burn them, couldn't bury them. So we took them, tied them to a rock and threw them in the bottom of the Kentucky River. So that way, when either the beads broke down or whatever energy was holding her to them broke down, she could return back to where she came from. She was doing her job. She was a protector of her people. So I don't fault her. She was malicious, but she wasn't malevolent, if that makes sense. She was just a very aggressive, very aggressive little spirit. Yeah, she was kind of like a little soldier. Somebody pissed her off or her people off and she was conjured in whatever way. And that was her mission. Were you mad at your roommate for putting the beads in your bed and not telling you? I just got to ask. I should have been. I chalked it up to her not thinking it through. Like, I didn't see it as malicious at the time. The more I yeah. look back, I kind of question that. And it literally was just another in a long line of weird things that happened when we lived together. Just all kinds of craziness. 
So I feel like you have a comfort with the paranormal and it's kind of, I mean, as you would, right? Like if I was talking to a ghost from my playpen or whatever at that young of an age, it's already in your frame of reference. You already know that not every one of them is evil, which is a huge step, right? Because if I see something that is unknown in my room, I'm still at the point where I'm like, bitch, get out. Like, I think I always think it's bad. You know, it's a process. You have to relearn that not everything that's different from you is bad. Mm -hmm. But there's got to be something that still scares the shit out of you. Working in this field and studying it for so long and being with that fascinating roommate. Now, what scares you the most or what did scare you the most? So the experience that scared me the most is not the one that people think it would be. It's not the times that I've been bit or hit Hitten, bit or (laughs) hit or bitten Bitten or hit. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) The time that scared me the most, I was still in high school and I was reading in bed and it was, it was late at night. I was up later than I should have been. And I felt the energy change. Ghost entered the room. Cool. I was at home. I was in my bedroom. It's going to be the guy who comes in through window and sits on my bed. That's what it's going to be. Not a big deal. Didn't really feel like talking, but if we wanted to come sit, okay, fine. So I continue reading with my back to the room because I'm not giving anyone the time of day. And uh, I felt someone sit on the edge of the bed, par for the course, same ghost, we're good. And then the next thing I know, the bed moves and it lays down behind me and it wraps its arm around me and it's sort of like spooning me. The bed? No, the ghost. The ghost ghost. is on the edge of the bed. Okay. (laughs) Okay, so the, (laughs) shit, sorry. The ghost, (laughs) the bed did what? (laughs) Yes, it's a very weird bed. (laughs) <laughs> like a Disney movie. <laughs> okay. So there's a ghost. You think it's just your, your great grand uncle man. And then all of a sudden he kind of scoops in on you. Got uh-huh. it. Keep going. Lays down, wraps his arm around me. I flip my shit. I like jumped out of bed. Like <laughs> two steps were across the room. We are at the door. And I was petrified like that. This, this was beyond the pale for me. This was not okay. This is no, all the no. And I went and sat in the bathtub with the logic being that if it followed me, I couldn't feel it sit down. Like that was my level of logic at this point. Like I couldn't handle this. And when I sort of sat there and calmed down for a minute, I realized one, who the spirit was, was one that I've known for a very long time. And two, that he wasn't trying to be creepy. He was trying to be comforting. And it just went all shades of wrong for me. But that is the time that I remember being like well and truly terrified of a ghost. That very quickly became one of the rules for the ghosts because you have to have house rules for them. Mm, you like, do. You know, if you don't follow the rules, you're getting kicked out. These are the rules. Break them and you're gone. You don't touch me unless someone is an imminent, and I do mean imminent, physical harm. Yeah, very clear. Do you often have physical contact with ghosts? It happens often enough that it doesn't surprise me when it happens. It's not something that happens on a daily or even weekly basis, but it has happened enough especially when I was younger, before I could tell what was real and what was dead, that it doesn't surprise me. In New Orleans specifically, a little girl wanted to be walked across a busy lobby to a little restaurant because she didn't want to cross the room. And I held her hand and I walked her over and the maitre d' is like, yep, happens all the time. I was like, great, (laughs) great. Because she totally wasn't there. But I remember feeling her little hand in mine. Like human spirits oftentimes feel more real to me. They feel less energetic. And oftentimes they do have less energy to access. So it does make some level of sense. They're not as equipped to feed on the other side as say a human spirit would be. So it gets, it's different. Tiffany and I 
got in contact with a well-known vampire, very well-known vampire and energy worker. So the vampires come into play. And once the vampires come into play, everything sort of goes insane. So her group is a group of energy workers. It's a vampire house and it is based on past lives, past life connections, all sorts of weird, weird, old magic. Cool magic? Super cool magic. I was handed items. and They're like, so tell me what ghost is on this. And I'm like, you realize I just met you and didn't tell you I see dead people, right? And they're like, here, <laughs> let's find out. So, you know, normal, super normal. Did you go way <laughs> down the rabbit hole? Oh, yeah. It was deep dive. Super deep dive. But the rabbit holes, I don't know if I could fully explain like everything that happened because of how intertwined all of the magic and all the past life stuff became and all of the rituals and all of the weirdness. Okay. Mediums. But how, what do you do when you encounter them? Can you pick them out like right away? Someone who is a medium like I am, someone who is a psychic like I am, feels familiar to me. It's a very easy energy to pick out. People who are embellishing, if we're being nice, are very easy to pick out, especially in person. Nine times out of 10, they will avoid me like the plague. Interesting. They don't want to be near me. The times that I've been at like a hunt or a convention where I am with them for any length of time, it becomes sort of contentious quickly and very obvious that a cold read is happening. There's a lot of cold reading that goes on, which is really annoying because there's some very talented psychics out there who don't get the attention that they possibly should because, you know, charlatans. I guess it makes sense that they're scared to be around you because they at least have enough intuition to know that you're going to know that they're bullshit. Most of the ones that I have met have some psychic ability. It's that they don't stick to that and they feel the need to embellish it. If they would go back and rely on what they actually have and work with that, they would do just fine. They would be decent psychics. But it's when you start adding and embellishing and just sort of layering that on top of, oh, yes, yes, I'm psychic. Oh, yes, yes, look at me, I'm psychic. And I find that happens a lot at conventions or even at ghost hunts where you've got that one person in the group who's like, I'm the psychic here. Let me show you all about it. And it's oftentimes when they're sort of starting out or trying to sort of build that persona. Mm -hmm. But for some, I think they sustain it the same way an actor does. You're not on all the time. You're on yeah. when you're in public. So I think it's very situational. Yeah, it feels like everybody's a psychic or a medium. Some people are like, fuck the word medium. Some people are like, oh no, I'm not a psychic. I'm only a medium. <laughs> I'm an intuitive. What are your definitions of psychic and medium? And what do you identify as? So a psychic for me is someone who gets information through an extrasensory way. They see, they feel, they hear, they whatever, but they're getting information that they should not normally have through a paranormal means, whatever that might be. Just very blatant. Most people have some level of psychic ability. If you're in the room with a ghost, you're probably going to see it, feel it, hear it, smell it, something. Some people are more attuned to it than others. A medium, by the old definition, by the definition that I've always sort of gone by, is someone that is able to share their person, share their skin suit with mm -hmm. someone that is not in a body, someone or something. So in my mind, it is sort of a mild form of possession, be that them using your voice, using your hand, whatever it happens to be. It is that sort of mild possessory state that allows them to use the body as a medium to communicate with the living. I am technically a medium. I do not like to do it. 
I will only do true mediumship when I am in a location where I either have someone that I know and that I trust that can get me out of that if I end up stuck or I am positive that everything in the building and everything nearby is human. So I've done that on camera all of once. Was it awful? Did you have a bad experience? So I did that when we went to Lizzie Borden. It was for the CW show and we went there. So we did a, not a mediumship reading, but just me talking to a dead thing when we were at Maplecroft, which is Lizzie's house after the murders. That was totally fine. Totally normal. She was actually quite charming. Not at all what I expected. She was very, very cordial. If you treated her like a lady and you were female, she was fine. When we went to the murder house, all the spirits in the house were human. So I didn't think it would be a big deal to go in there and talk to the dead things. And they really, really wanted some sort of like mediumship. So that's what we did. Mrs. Borden, the one who was murdered, functions more as an inhuman spirit than a human spirit. It was really surprising to me. She was very aggressive. She knew how to, if you have any sort of empathy, you'll sort of know what I'm talking about. She was shoving her emotions. She was forcing me to feel her emotions. Like Mm -hmm. that was her goal. She was trying to get that emotional reaction out of me to feed on. And she had very much figured out the same way that a lot of inhuman spirits do to sort of feed and allow themselves to manifest more and more. She has a very sort of clear picture of how she thinks things went down. And she was a victim of brutal murder, absolutely. But she doesn't act like most human spirits act. It was very strange. She talks about, I just wanted the girls to love me. I don't know why they didn't love me. I wanted the girls to love me. Why didn't they love me? And for me, when I get ghosts talking to me, it's very much they repeat themselves, which is super annoying, but that's sort of how they talk. But she emotionally was not all right. I get the feeling that there was some level of manipulation there. She was very much a trip. And that situation was messy. And that one point I was sobbing, which wow. was great. <laughs> Fantastic. She presented herself as something a little meeker and something a little more personable than what she actually was. Did she actually possess you? Did you feel like she finally kind of merged with you in any way? She was trying. There's this, if you've ever had a ghost try and walk in, sort of a walk-in possession where a ghost tries, it has this very distinct feel to it. It feels like something is pressing against you and pressing and pressing and pressing and pressing and trying to get through whatever shields that you have built. At least for me, that's what it feels like. Almost like you're being sort of, I don't know, shrink wrapped. Like that's, it's very claustrophobic, very much that feeling until you are able to push it away or force it out of your space. She very much tried. I've done it prior in other situations where there were other people around that I trusted to Get me out if I got in over my head. Yeah. Uh, Or that I was sure I knew the ghost personally. So it was easier in other situations. But that's the time that it got a little dicey. The question that keeps bubbling up in my mind is that you're dealing with these different entities. You're in college. I guess now we're in grad school. You're hanging out with like some vampire people who are very esoteric. You're learning a lot of really interesting things. You're doing a lot of past life work, which can be very complicated, I know. Mm -hmm. And I just want to know what kind of wisdom you feel you gleaned from this? Like, do, are there things that you're like, I just know this now and I learned it through spirit or I learned it through these magic practices? I think specifically what I took away from all of the weird things that I've been involved in, specifically the ghosts in the past life work, is that 
what happened in the past is just that it's the past. You can look at it. You can acknowledge it. You cannot live there. You must always be moving forward. You must always be looking for what is next. It doesn't have to be an act or a project or anything like that. You just need to be present in the here and now, and you need to be aware of what is here and what is now. Like the past has its time. Ghosts have their time. They have their place, but you're alive. You're in a body right now. And you need to realize that that is important, just as important as whatever weird thing is crawling around in the back of your brain saying, hey, you've got to realize that that is necessary too. And sort of finding that balance has been very, very important to me. Yeah, I think it's important for a lot of people in these fields to find the balance between the two because you can get very lost in the land of esoterica. It becomes, <laughs> exactly. It's very seductive. It's very air. There's a lot of air quality and a lot of, sometimes fire. And that's just is kind of like, mm-hmm. you need some earth, you need some water. And I'm wondering too, like you spend so many time with so many different kinds of entities. Did you get any insight on why some come back, why some don't, and the ones that don't, where do they go? Any of that? So yes. If we're dealing with human spirits specifically, I believe in past lives. I believe in soul families. So as a general rule, what I have seen happen is when someone dies, they will either head to the other side, generally for some length of time, just to sort of chill. But when there's a baby, a graduation, some big important life event, they generally pop back across to their soul family to see them. And they wait for the rest of their family to come back over. And then as a group, they will come back. So it's a circle. It's a cycle very much with them. When you're dealing with things that never wore a skin suit, you get things that some of them do have places over there. No idea what happens, like uh, the other side beyond the veil, the weird place where all things like that sort of exist. But a lot of them don't seem to cross there. They seem to see this as their home, especially when you start dealing with elementals, nature spirits, things like that. This is their place. This has always been their place. It always will be their place. They might not be active, but they are always present if sleeping. Yeah, I I watched a show recently. I can't remember what it was, but they get to a place and it just feels like there's no amount of cleansing. (laughs) <laughs> That's just going to be a dark, weird, demonic place. And you just stay away from that place, you know? Or you go poke it. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Your choice. After all this work, do you believe in hell? And if so, how do you define it? Hell is of your own making. I believe that there are certain things that can be done to spirits and or entities to torture them for a time. But I do not believe in the Christian concept of hell, no. I'm actually getting like two ends of the spectrum from the paranormal world. It's like I'll either get, I mean, because I'm on the end where I'm like, fuck hell. I I agree with you 100%. (laughs) But on the other end, I'm getting people who are super, super religious and they're doing this, which I find fascinating. I'm like, yes. Ah, how did you do that? Like, how'd you do all that work and all that research? And you still think that, and I don't mean to be judgmental. I'm just like curious how you get to that conclusion. It's always interesting to me when I end up on investigations with things like Christian mountain witches and things like that. And I'm just like, I respect your practice, but that is quite a title. Amazing. <laughs> do your thing, but can, can you explain? Yeah. It's like one of these things is not like the other, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, what's that thing right there? That big elephant in the room. It doesn't seem to fit. You know, we're talking about hell. Let's just talk about the Fae. Let's talk about okay. all the things that seem to be cropping up in conversations lately. Like 
I'm getting a lot of aliens. I'm getting a lot of fae. You're dealing with the other on a regular basis. How do you Mm -hmm. categorize them? Taxonomy. So in my mind, there are two divisions of spirits. You have the humans who were at one time alive and running a body. Anything that wasn't is inhuman. Doesn't Mm -hmm. matter if it's a cat, a dog, a demon, a fae, a djinn, anything. So I do break them down beyond that, especially if I have to work with them. I've got some that I have here with me that live in my house that were never people. And I spend quite a bit of time working with them to figure out what their background is, what they believe. I very much believe in cultural relativism and you should explain something as they see themselves. Like that, that resonates with me, especially when dealing with things that weren't human. Just because I have an human spirit here does not mean it's a demon. If I call something that is a gen a demon, that's a great way to piss it off. Mm. That is not going to accomplish anything for me. So I break them down into a lot of little groups as to how they define themselves. It gets really complicated. So in my mind, I sort of base it by where the entity originated. So in my mind, Fae are Celtic-based nature spirits. In the U.S., you have native spirits, you have land spirits, you have things like that. You have puck wedgies, good example of those. In the Middle East, you're going to find angels, demons, and jinn. Now, whether these are the exact same creatures or something else gets a little dicey in there. There do seem to be some that differentiate themselves from angels and demons and present themselves as jinn. So they identify that way. So they're jinn. Cool. But angels and demons, both inhuman types of beings that at one time, in my mind, tried to take up human form, whether successful or not, is a little dicey. The difference between an angel and a demon, as far as I'm concerned, is what side they're standing on. They are literally the same types of entities with the same types of powers. They just choose to be where they choose to be. Do humans become angels? Do we ever, as far as the past life thing goes... I don't believe you can change species. If you started out as one, then you are. If you are human, then you are human. Hmm. But then that gets into the other kin and things like that with other souls and bodies and things of that nature. But specifically with humans dying, an angel is an entirely different type of being Hmm. and not what sort of modern media wants you to think. Balls of wings and eyes, you know. Traditionally, they are depicted as terrifying manifestations sometimes with four and five heads or no heads at all and spinning wheels hinduism for instance or even buddhism this concept that like after a tremendous amount of (laughs) meditation you Mm -hmm. will then surpass this body and move on into something else which is uh, like a mavatar i think they're called there's different levels Mm -hmm. right that are like beyond the body because you've done so much spirit work Do you think that's possible? I do. I think that if you have done enough work and you have become conscious enough of the other side, then you can choose not to incarnate and choose to function as essentially a spirit when you leave your body for whatever reason. I do think that that is entirely possible, though exceedingly hard to reach. Like... Not happening for me this lifetime. No, 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 no. no. (laughs) I think when I was like 16, I was like, I'm doing it. I'm going for it. (laughs) Hundreds of hours of meditation. Then I was like, shit, I can't do this. I'm tired. (laughs) I feel tired. Exactly. Too much work. It's like, generally speaking, if you are this, you're going to remain this. But there are exceptions to that role and, and that you can transcend if you really, really work hard on essentially making it to where this reality isn't the prominent one. This one is. Right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's just a lot of work. 
it is. It's a whole lot of work. Yeah. But even in that, I don't think you could truly go from, I am entirely human. My soul is entirely human to, hey, guess what? My soul is now. Antler man. Whatever. It's a kid soon now. Yeah. You can't. I No. Yeah. Like, I yeah. don't physically see how that's possible. Yeah. That seems weird. That doesn't feel right. So I feel like I got a full grasp on your theories on like (laughs) inhuman spirits, the fae. I feel like aliens kind of get their own broad stroke, right? They do. Aliens. My personal pet theory is that aliens are fae. Fae are aliens. Same phenomena. Especially if you look at the old literature about fae abductions. They run the same way as alien abductions. It's sort of the same basic descriptions with the small people that are responding to the tall, beautiful people and various things are done to you. They might steal a child. They might impregnate you. They're going to send you back eventually. It looks very, very similar. Have you ever had any alien experiences? I'm going to say no, but I've had fey experiences. It's very comfortable for me to say fey experiences. Aliens, I still have this like ingrained thing from when I was little. Aliens are the UFOs that come out of the sky and steal you from your bed at night. Like that is what is ingrained. Yeah, that's ingrained in my brain. That that is what those are. But that's not the experience people talk about. You know what I mean? So have I probably, but not in the definition that I like. <laughs> I like that. I'm stealing that for sure because I'm watching the reports that are coming out right now about the crafts and I'm on it. But I like saying, oh, just the fae are coming to visit. You know, that feels better to me. <laughs> exactly, right? If you're getting comforting. abducted by the fae, you might end up dead in a ditch somewhere, but better than being abducted and on Mars. Yeah, I agree. A hundred percent. I'm taking it. (laughs) I think right now what's interesting is I'm feeling so much energy from these interviews that I'm having with people. There's so much interest in paranormal right now. There's so Mm -hmm. much beautiful vulnerability. People who are just sharing things that they're like, I used to be scared to tell anybody this and now I'm telling everybody this. Do you have a theory about why that's happening now? I think some of it is due to what has been building for the past several years. It's been very much in the media. It's been very much sort of that, even in the public eye, this idea that witches are now, okay, we can talk about them. They're out. We came out of the satanic panic and sort of as that reactionary thing, you have the witches and the pagans all coming out of the woodwork and being like, no, 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 we're real. We're here and we don't abduct children, that sort of thing. I think that that has a lot to do with it. I also think that to an extent, it looks likely to me that we are sort of sliding towards some kind of satanic panic again, like just media reports and things like that. It looks very reminiscent, shall we say, of the earlier times. And I think some of the people speaking out are in reaction to that, whether they are equating it in their brain or just sort of doing it on an instinctual level. I'm not sure, but I think that that has a lot to do with it. Mm. I recently got to interview Kathleen Martin from MUFON. She used to be Mm -hmm. the director of experience at MUFON. Super fascinating lady. She had actual research and data. And so she was telling me like 75% of people that get abducted by this alien, you know, and I was like, (laughs) my mind was like, you know, wait, what? You actually have numbers? It's like 10, 15, 20 different kinds of species. And that's just within the past couple of years. And I wonder, too, if an extent that we're starting to deal with tulpas. Tulpas. Tulpas, thought forms. Uh, Slenderman, great example. Mm, okay. uh, you know Slenderman. Yeah. We created online, but people are now having 
and ah. recording actual experiences with a Slenderman-like creature. Basically, the idea of a tulpa is people put enough thought and enough energy into something that it becomes semi-sentient at times, but it can move and act as the energy was poured into it, basically. Mm. If you're pouring energy into a Slenderman-type creature, it's going to be a creepy thing that looks in windows and scares kids. Like, that's specifically what it is intended to do. I kind of wonder if the proliferation of alien types, especially the reptilians, especially the reptilians, are tulpa types. Or the uh, mantis types. Uh, Yeah, the praying mantis. That's a really popular one, she said. Yeah. That makes complete sense, right? Because the reptilians have so much energy around them right now they do and so we're just i mean we got power we're are we creating them i think that we are creating at least the image of them and i think if you look back far enough like the old star trek where you had the fight with kirk and the reptile headed alien i kind of wonder if that sort of archetype isn't what started the idea of this modern sort of humanoid alien reptile but i've been doing research and i found Four distinct types of reptilian cryptids in the Ohio River Valley reported over the last 150 years. So mm-hmm. this reptile has always been kind of ingrained in the human idea, I guess. Is there anything right now that you really feel is important to talk about or any work that you want to kind of plug? I am going to be published in August in <laughs> The Feminine Macabre. I'm talking about the Mandy Tree, which was a story that happened in my hometown. I've like to tell it to you if I could. Yes, please. So 150 or so years ago in my hometown, there was a woman named Mandy and she was a black woman who lived in town. Her husband worked at the local college, just sort of normal life, had several kids. She was a gardener and loved her garden, especially had one favorite tree. She was found brutally murdered while she was alone at home. She was found murdered directly in front of the window that overlooked her favorite tree. She was shot. The gun was never found or wasn't found at the time. And it was ruled a suicide because, Mm. you know, as one does when you shoot yourself in the head, you hide the gun after you do it. You know, totally normal. And after you've wrapped yourself up in a quilt that has no blood on it, Mm. you know, it, it makes a lot of sense, right? Well, she dies. Her family falls onto some hard times. But they are still living in the same house. Outside of that house is the tree that Mandy planted. And that tree, 19-teens, 1920s, ends up growing into the shape of Mandy's head and collar. Looks dead on like her. Mm -hmm. And essentially, her family were able to come out of the hard times that they were on by selling souvenirs and refreshments to people who came out to see the Mandy tree. But it also sort of kept her story alive. And it brought them out of the financial issues that they were having. And they were able to continue this for several years. It was sort of a legend-tripping destination, if you will. But they were able to talk about the suspicious suicide and everything like that. Eventually, they were renovating the house where the murder took place. And they found behind the mantle place a gun of the right age and the right caliber and the right style to have been the one to kill Mandy. And shortly after the gun was found, lightning struck the tree and it was destroyed. So she waited just long enough for the gun to be found to prove it it wasn't a suicide, for the tree to die. And since then, her spirit has not been seen. But before that, it was seen in and around the tree. Wow. So that'll be coming out in August. What are you working on now? Are we allowed to know? Can we have a sneak peek? Uh, I am working on a book of cryptids. So 
weird cryptids, not your Bigfoot. There's not a Bigfoot in the book. It is all of the cryptids that sort of skirt the line between inhuman spirit and cryptid. Mm. So I've got two of them from each state and they are the most obscure ones that I can possibly find with a smattering of vampires thrown in there because I can't help myself. I've got some aliens in there, some goblins, some bat squatch, you know, just the weird, weird cryptids that I can find. So I'm finding reports from local areas or stories because some of them fall into that fearsome critters category, which was sort of an older term for things like the cactus cat, which -hmm. is supposed to be this feline that roams the desert and it eats cactuses and screams Mm -hmm. that probably never existed, but is an excellent sort of cowboy story all the same. Mm. Or the squonk, the poor little squonk. You've got to feel sorry for him. It's this creature that's so ugly that it constantly cries because it's so ugly. Everybody feels sorry for the squonk. (laughs) But you've got stories like that. And then you have things like Mothman that sort of fall into the same categories. Or the uh, Lizardmen of Loveland, Ohio. Things like that. Where you have these creatures that could be fearsome creatures. But could also be some form of inhuman or an alien. Or even a cryptid. Although I think most of these are probably not physical unless we're dealing with the water, the aquatic ones. Mm-hmm. Those, I think, have a better chance. But When you're doing this research, are you doing it from sort of like an investigative journalist perspective? I was never trained to be a journalist. I was trained to be a historian, a public historian specifically. I'm trained to take the tales that are told and formulate them into a cohesive narrative that makes sense and follows the facts as best as we know them. Mm. So when you start dealing with things like monsters it gets a little dicey as to fact and fiction. But if you look at it from that anthropological lens, the fact is the fiction at times. So anecdotal evidence, it becomes the fact fact. It does. And it can over a period of time. I do have to say like Kathleen, you know, if she has 5,000 people who are all over the country saying the same exact thing, it's like, okay, well, I I say that's a fact now. Exactly. That something like that exists. So Exactly. This project for me was very much a reaction to quarantine. When I was in the thick of it, I started doing this research because I wanted to be out of the house and I wanted to see sort of the most obscure cryptids I could find or the most interesting cryptids I could find in every state because a road trip sounded like the best thing in the world to me at that point. So I was looking specifically for things that were tied to physical places that one could go and see, like the location where Braxy showed up or anything of that sort, just something that had physicality to it. What about the black eyed children? They keep popping up. (laughs) What's your thought on them? Are they a tulpa? Creepy. They're creepy. They're super creepy. I've been having this debate a lot lately. This is a question that's been coming up a ton with people around me recently. And the original story of the black eyed kids, Abilene, Texas, is actually one of the stories that I have pulled for the book. Like it's, it's there. I don't know how much physical credence I have to that. Do I believe that he thinks he saw something? Probably. Do I believe that there were two children tapping on his window? Not so certain. You know what I mean? Like, I think it's very much along the same lines as a Slenderman type situation where you have this experience, this story that the man wrote about what he remembers happening to him. And I think it gained enough attention that we have created a tulpa of them running around. Yay. So, right? Great. <laughs> Love it. I got to say, out of all of them, they scare the pucky out of me. <laughs> I right? do not like They're, them. Have you done the deep dives into the stories of the people who have let them in? I have, yes, some of them. And and then I have to stop because I'm right? like, why would you let them in? Right? Or the ones that get bitten by them? 
No, thank you. My favorite are the ones where the men in black show up to collect them. I live relatively close to Point Pleasant. So I've been going back and forth and looking at Mothman and things like that. And I was digging into a case much closer to where I actually live and discovered that a case that had no connection to that sort of men in black phenomena actually had one present that Hmm. people don't talk about. And it's just like, how prevalent are these things? And are we talking about alien beings? Are we talking about weird government people? Like, what is it? Because those I find much more terrifying than black eyed -eyed children. Right. Yeah. The men in black have also been popping up more often than usual in Mm -hmm. conversation. And I think it's interesting because the stories are different. Sometimes they're like, oh no, straight up, that was not a human. Yeah. And then sometimes they're like, I don't know. It just seemed like a really pale dude, Like like a regular dude man. And he just was very stern and kind of hypnotic. And I felt sleepy when he was around, you know, the shit. It's like, which one? I don't know. I don't care to find out. (laughs) Yeah, I'd really rather not. But one of the things I was looking at had actually reported that Indrid Cold, the smiling man, who sometimes lumped in with the men in black, was supposed to have lived in Kentucky. Oh, dear. Like, guys, (laughs) the state is weird enough. We don't need that. Thank you. But can we trade with another state? How do you feel about the Illuminati or something like that, trying to keep us away from all of this esoteric knowledge that you've actively been pursuing your whole life? So how am I going to word this? They totally existed. They lasted for like 20 years. The Illuminati was an actual secret society that existed. We know this. We have the documents. They existed. They functioned for a little while. They fell apart. End of story. I do not think that the original Illuminati still exists in that form today. I don't think it existed at that form 50 years after it was founded. I think it fell apart and other things have taken up the mantle of that. Would it surprise me if there were organized groups by certain organizations that are trying to hide certain things? No, it would not. I mean, if you look at like MKUltra and things like that, mm-hmm. I mean, that sort of functions in the same exact kind of way because, oh no, that doesn't exist. That doesn't exist. Oh yeah, it totally existed. You know? Mm-hmm. Until it's declassified, it's like... Right. Yeah. And capitalism specifically and the patriarchy specifically <laughs> is sort of geared toward almost automatically destroying this relationship with our psychic selves and destroying this relationship with anything Mm -hmm. that's unknown. I would say that the people with a vested interest in it are going to be those that are trying to weaponize it and those that are trying to use it to their benefit. That would take a lot of money, a lot of time, and a lot of resources that I don't think most groups, even well-funded groups, could do outside of it being a governmental thing. Just curious, you know, (laughs) light chat, (laughs) you know, super fluffy topics. Love it. You know, it's amazing though, because I see little kids and I'm like, you are so fucking cool and so magic. And then 10 years later, they just all of a sudden lost it. Like they lost everything that was beautiful about connecting their hearts to their throat chakras and being able to feel things. It seems our entire system is somehow built to encourage that. And you can immediately go to like a conspiracy theory that like we're trying to make drones out of you or something. But it does seem sloppier than that, right? Like humans are so sloppy. Yeah, they are. And that would require so much organization Mm. and so many people to keep their mouths shut. Yeah, I I feel like it might be just disjointed, right? Like very much so. Yeah, like that's the only way I could see that as actually functioning. 
is if it was disparate groups that literally have no connection to one another doing little things in their specific area. Primarily dudes, do you think? <laughs> <laughs> well, in my experience, yes. Uh, yeah. At least from what I've seen, when you start getting into the sort of paranormal that can be proven, the paranormal that can be used on demand, things like that. I've seen a lot of men that are involved in that, trying to pin it down, trying to figure it out, trying to debunk, you know, you're clearly not because you cannot reproduce this exact same phenomena on demand. That seems to be a very male dominated portion of the paranormal field. Is that because science is male dominated? Possibly. But that's always sort of struck me because it goes back to the spiritualists. What do you mean? So the spiritualists were mainly female. Most spiritualist mediums were females that were able to contact the dead. Some of them legitimately, some of them were frauds. I mean, let's be serious. But you see the ones that are trying to out them, the most famous being Harry Houdini. Like he did a stage show to out them. And most of the ones who were on the circuit trying to out and trying to prove the spiritualist mediums were frauds, all of them are frauds, were men. And they hmm. were going against these women who were using their unique talents as a way to escape the societally prescribed role. Because women who are mediums were allowed to travel. They were hmm. allowed to headline shows. They were allowed to be in public. They were allowed to have gatherings at their private homes of whoever they would like to invite. And it was not scandalous in the least. Blasphemy. Right? <laughs> when you're on a ghost hunt or you're out there working with people in this realm, is it predominantly male? Yes. When I'm dealing with ghost hunters specifically, especially organized groups, they are generally male. But I've seen that sort of changing to where you have the men's groups and you have the women's groups. But what I've been noticing in that is that in the men's groups, you have lots of technology. I have all the cameras. I have all the gadgets. I have all the gizmos. And in the ladies' groups, oftentimes they have some of those, but they also generally have two, three, four, five mediums. Or the ladies that are in the men's groups, oh, I'm the medium of the group. I'm here to talk to the dead people for you. Mm -hmm. And it seems to be that sort of line that you even saw back in the spiritualist times. Women are considered to be more in touch with the spiritual, more in touch with the religious side of things. And men are more Tactile. analytical and yeah, yeah, more science. Yeah. It's bullshit, but it seems to be very, very delineated like that. One of the last ghost hunts I was actually on was one of the more recent times that I actually had a man there who was doing energy work. And that was the first time that I remember a man in a paranormal, not an esoteric sort of setting, doing energy work at a ghost hunt. And it was very different. <laughs> Different energetically. Different energetically, absolutely. So there was an inhuman spirit present at the thing. And me being me, I'm going to poke it. I mean, it's there. That's why we're here. Let's, let's talk to the thing. <laughs> and, you know, it's not bigger and badder than us. It's not aggressive. We're fine. You know, don't go into its space and you'll be good. That was very much my approach to it. He did not like that. He very much wanted to make sure that the thing stayed in a room and stayed away from me. He was very concerned. It's, it's going to try and come for you. No, no, it is not. That thing is just doing its thing. So he was very much trying to block off both my and its energies energetically to keep me safe, I guess. <sighs> That's my response to that. Yeah. <laughs> I get it. It's Primal. a nice gesture. Yeah. But it's not warranted. But it's like, I remember going into conventions where I was speaking and you walk in, oh, little girl, let me tell you about ghosts. You're like, I'm speaking. That happens even after they know you're speaking. I come oh. in and it feels an address and they're just like, 
oh, little girl, oh, little girl. <laughs> it's just like. Now, do you maintain your composure and humility in those moments? Are you like, okay, listen, I am not a little girl. Why don't you bite a dick? I know more than you probably. What, what do you do? I let them talk and then I point out where they're wrong. And then they either start yelling or they walk away. I mean, that's how that goes. I feel like the women generally, there are some exceptions. Like Katrina Weidman is a badass. Bitch. Oh, I love Katrina. She's great. I don't know her, but she's a badass bitch. But then some of the other women that are on these shows, they kind of cower a little mm -hmm. bit and the men kind of get to control what's going on. And I'm just sort of curious if we flip that, if things might go better or if there might be a more successful ghost hunt quote. I think the reaction would be different. Like when I was talking to Lizzie Borden, the only other group that got to go into Maplecroft had multiple men involved. The group that I went in with, both me and the co-host, were both girls. So as you go in here, it got a different reaction out of Lizbeth. Very much so. Mm. She was willing to talk. She was not hyper-aggressive. I mean, she wasn't warm and fuzzy. But she was very much a Victorian woman of her time. She's pretty much what I expected. I think if there was a little bit more give in that sort of idea, that there would be better results on some shows. But... Shows and networks are very, very, very set on what they want and the roles that they want. I mean, I had one actually tell me that you're too female. And I'm just like, I don't know what that means. What does that even mean? Like, you had a picture of me. You did not need to call me to tell me this. You are too female. I don't even know how to respond to that. Did you feel offended? Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, but it's just what they think is going to sell. They want like, what, only tomboy ghost hunters or something? From my experience, when people are looking for mediums, they generally hire older, at least older than I am, or people who do not appear like me. They do not like my aesthetic for a psychic. Do you have a team that you regularly go out with or that you, you know, you like to ping pong ideas or experiences with or writing with? I go where I get called, essentially. So I don't do a lot of ghost hunting for ghost hunting's sake. If it's not like a charity event, things like that, I'll do public events. But if I'm going out actually ghost hunting, those are generally on referral. Somebody that I know on a team is having an inhuman issue. I go out for those. Most of what I end up doing is actually dealing with people who have quirks like I do, especially when there are children involved. So my kid is seeing whatever. Those are the cases I get involved in. I'm working with the children to sort of get them comfortable with what they are seeing and what they are feeling. You deal with so many unusual experiences and you help so many people. Is there like one central tip that you could give the listeners to help them if they're having an experience with a ghost or a spirit? The first thing you want to do when you're having any sort of haunting is take a second and breathe. If you're afraid, remove yourself from the situation until you're calm. Once you are, you need to critically look at what happened. You need to look and see if something is trying to get your attention or if something is trying to scare you. You really need to understand that spirits feed on energy. The more energy you give them, the more and bigger the emotional reaction you give them, the more fuel they have to do it again. If you're afraid, walk out. Don't feel like you can't. Just walk out for a little bit and come back. And once you have found and centered yourself, whatever your particular belief system is, use it. It will work. All those sort of belief systems, whether it's Christianity, paganism, anything of the sort, each of them has their own clearing rituals. They have their own blessings. They all run on energy. And so long as you believe it, it'll work. You're in a body. They're not. You will win the fight. 
And if it is something that is too stubborn for you, get help. Do not pay for that help because there's a lot of shysters out there. Don't pay for it, but reach out. There's people out there that can help clear things if you do not feel confident doing it yourself. Yeah, that's great advice because a lot of times when you feel afraid, you tend to just get frozen in that spot and Mm -hmm. you think, I got to stay here. I got to tough it out. And it's like, just get up and go get a fucking bowl of cereal or something Mm -hmm. in the other room because you can almost get hypnotized by the feeling of the entity being in the room. And then you feel like everything's fucked up. And if you can just get enough energy to get your ass out of bed or wherever you are and into Mm -hmm. the other room. Yeah. Yep. It's good advice. I'm sure you deal with so many people who are terrified. Has there ever been a case where you leave and they're still like, ah, what the fuck? I don't know what to do. Or do you feel like you can pretty much close them up? I feel like I can pretty much get someone stable. Whether they stay that way is a different story. Some people consciously or subconsciously seem to enjoy the activity as it happens and everything that comes along with it. So I can remove a spirit, know it's gone, close the place, shield it. It's good. Two months later, it's back. That thing did not get through those wards without you inviting it in, Mm -hmm. in one way, shape, fashion, or form. You know what I mean? Sometimes intentional. Yeah. I've actually had to, after these calls with people, I have to cleanse because I started to have really weird fucking shit happen. Yeah. And it was all coming from this space. I talked to this shaman lady and she was like, honey, you're like essentially creating a portal. Yep. That's exactly so what you're doing. Clean it up every time. Mm-hmm. Don't skip it. So I, I had to learn the hard way with that. I do ask this one last question to everyone. Mm-hmm. And that is, what is the most profound spiritual, supernatural, paranormal, woo experience that you've ever had. You have told me about a very sharp toothed, tiny, beautiful lady who pushed you down the stairs, the antler man and the nice ghost who totally Mm -hmm. freaked you out by touching Mm -hmm. you. I've got a lot of stories here. Is there another secret whopper that we don't know about that you care to share? I've had a series of experiences with a certain entity. It is not human. It has never been human. The first time that I met the spirit, I was in middle school, I think at that time still. It was in Gatlinburg. It was a gentleman standing out in front of a random old building. He had a top hat on. He had a pinstripe suit on, very dark pinstripe suit. He had very dark hair, very dark skin. He smiled at me. He tipped his hat. He bowed. And then he was gone. It was the first hmm. time I saw him. Second time I saw him, I was in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Exact same man, exact same suit, exact same actions. He smiled, tipped his hat, and he bowed. Third time I saw this man. I was in Cleveland, actually. I was working in the Science Museum. It was uh, Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King Day, yeah. It's a free day for all the museums in Cleveland. We were not open. All of the doors were locked. I know all of the doors were locked because there were guards at every door because people were trying to get in. We were like 10 minutes from opening. And I was standing at the back next to the special exhibits area. And the next thing I know, this gentleman walks over to me. He had the suit, the hat, he had a cane, I think, under his arm, walking over to me. And he asked me for directions to the museum that was directly next door to us with the creepiest smile you've ever seen. Like he knew what he was doing. This was the first time he ever spoke to me. And I couldn't quite form words. I basically pointed. Like, we were in a glass atrium. You could see the other building. You could see it. We had a sidewalk, and then we were Lake Erie. Like, we were on the lake. He smiled. He tipped his hat, said, thank you, Cher, and walked towards the door. Watched him walk out the locked door and down the sidewalk. Now, back at the back of the building, there was no people because it was off limits to the public because they hadn't been opened yet. He walked behind a pillar, 
I walked down there to see where he was and he was not there. He was a loa. He was a voodoo spirit. What is it called? A loa. He was a loa. Those are the three most prominent times to me that I've seen him. And that was the first time that I had seen something that really means that much to another culture. He was the first sort of thing that was willing to speak to me, even if he was teasing me and he was teasing me when he did it, because he is known to be at the crossroads. That is his thing. And he was asking for directions, which is nonsensical. So I freaked out a little bit that day. (laughs) Yeah. Um, is your head spinning? Are you thinking about injured cold and the men in black? Or are you dying to know more details about the vampires Stephanie hung out with in college? Or how about that Loa spirit that just crops up every so often? Or what about the Mandy tree or the little girl with the shark teeth? I know, it's a lot to process. And I have approximately 1,546 more questions for Stephanie. And normally, I would talk to you about some shit that our conversation triggered right here, right now. But you know what? I have to sit with all this for a minute because the woo is playing with me. And the question is, do I have the bravery and groundedness to keep going? I don't know. I'll get back to you, TBD. But in the meantime, you should go check out what Stephanie is up to. She has a submission in volume two of The Feminine Macabre or Macabra. You decide because I've heard it both ways. Anyway, it's a woman's journal of all things strange and unusual, and it comes out in August. She's also cooking up a couple of books right now, and you can follow her on social media. And as always, all of those links will be in the show notes. So let me marinate in all of the wooery that's been coming at me rapid fire for the past few weeks. There's all kinds of weird stuff happening right now. I hope you're doing well. If you want to talk about it, you know where to email me. Till next time. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you for following the woo with me today. If you love what you heard, please make sure to subscribe to Follow the Woo wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're feeling particularly stoked about this show, please leave a review and or rating. You can also support this podcast by becoming a member of The Order of Woo, where you'll get community access and loads of extra goodies exclusively on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash follow the woo. The Order of Woo patrons bolster this podcast and community and allow for the creation of more content, products, services, and events over time. Every little bit helps, and I'm so grateful for the patrons who have joined the order already. If you've experienced something magical, mystical, or just downright weird and want to discuss it, or if you're interested in sharing your expertise, or if you want me to research a woo topic with you or for you, please email me at followthewoo at gmail.com. Join me next week for another woo topic. And remember, tell the truth, be nice to each other, and if it feels right, 